Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, WCC. It's good to see everyone again. As Pastor Jeff said, it's, um, it really is, just weather-wise, the best time of the year. It's this perfect medium that we get for about one week before it gets blistering cold <laughs> and you can't even go outside. So enjoy while it lasts, and I'm glad we picked this that one week to have our, our, uh, our church picnic. Um, and next time we'll all have to bring fur coats and blankets to, to do that. So, but it'll be good. It'll be good. Well, again, uh, good to see everybody. We'll continue this morning. Uh, uh, with our look at the book of Amos, the book of Amos, the minor prophet Amos. And um, before, we, before we do that, what we'll do is we'll open up, we'll, we'll read the text, uh, which today we'll be covering chapter 4, all of chapter 4. And then we'll, we'll open up with a word of prayer and we'll get started. So if you would, go ahead and turn there to the book of Amos, chapter 4. Amos 4, and uh, if you're not there yet, that's okay, because we're going to obviously be spending our time there, so, so keep, a, keep a finger in the page, and I'll go ahead and start reading. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast in the harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for you love to do so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send rain, no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a, as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. 
For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and shreds on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, I can preach the words, but only you can give them life. And so we pray that you would do what only you can do for the good of your people and the sake of your great name. Amen. So, chapter 4 continues the prophet's cry against Israel. And last week we saw that Yahweh was summoning the nations of Ashdod and Egypt to act as witnesses to the moral and spiritual degeneration of Israel and to the judgment that he would bring as a result. Remember, they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 3. We talked about this last week. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Because the northern kingdom is descended into such an abyss of sin, he calls these pagan nations, these nations with brutal reputations, he calls them, he summons them, uh, he subpoenas them to come as witnesses to see what Israel, Israel his firstborn, Israel his elect has become. Come and see. Come, have a look. Yahweh, the God who sees, the God who acts, the God who is perfectly just and is not deaf to the cries of the oppressed in Israel, are blind to the religious duplicity of its leaders. He will bring crashing down the palaces of an indifferent wealthy. The summer house and the winter houses and the houses of ivory, they're all coming down. He will bring an adversary to surround the land and attack it. And he will lay sword and fire to the strongholds of the kingdom. And he will cut off any means of escape. Now, if you're new to this series, or new to this book, you might say, well, that's quite harsh. What, 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 what has kindled the Lord's wrath just so, to this degree, at this level? Right? Fair question. Okay. Why, why is the Lord angered so much with Israel? Well, that's one of the things we're learning as we go through the book of Amos. Amos, the prophecy of Amos is revealing to us pieces of of just what Israel has done, just what Israel has become to garner the Lord's wrath, to garner his severe attention, okay? Uh, and, and one of those charges that we've kind of, we've seen so far, we've, we've, we've seen kind of a list, a, a catalog of charges that have been levied against the northern kingdom of Israel. And one of those charges is from chapter 2, verse 6. And we we had a sermon on chapter 2, but we also recounted some of these charges uh, in our last sermon last Sunday. And one of them was this. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Okay? The wealthy and elite of Israel become so caught up in their own decadence that they have their poor debtors sold into slavery as means to repay loans for as inconsequential a value as a pair of slippers, right? This is, this is the level of their greed, the level of their love of comfort and of nice things. It has risen to such a place that they are willing to readily, easily, for not very much, dispatch with the poor and the needy to get a little money. I mean, after all, after all, who needs a righteous person when you can have a few pounds of silver, right? 
Uh, uh, can righteousness buy a cozy summer cottage out by the lake with the wooden pier and the gazebo in the middle of a lush meadow and a cobblestone path running up to a wraparound porch and marble countertops and maple floors and a brass bed with a tempur mattress and pillows that stay cool all night? Can righteousness buy horses and houses and a life of ease with a nice view? Can it? And what a drain the needy is. What a drain. What a societal blight. Okay? We lend no money. Not much, of course, but they don't need much, right? We lend them money. And it is, isn't it just like, just like them, ingrates that they are, that they don't pay us back? Okay? They don't pay us back. Who ever heard of such a thing? All right? They don't pay us back. Okay? Why be bothered about them? Rather... I've received some sound financial advice from a friend of a friend who says that we can actually sell these people. We can sell them, and we can make a lot of quid. Okay, we can, we can make some money here. It's an ugly thing that Israel does, isn't it? It's, it's ugly. It's, it's not pleasant to look at, right? The, the kind of cal- moral calculus that went into their actions here. It's ugly. It's cruel. It's a cruel thing that Israel does. And we see it here again. I mean, that was from chapter 2, but we see it here again in chapter 4. And we will continue to see it. We will continue to see just what a severe offense this is, Israel's oppression of the poor. And when I say Israel there, of course, I'm, I'm talking about Israel's leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, the, the, uh, what we might call the elite political class of the land, the wealthy So he says this in chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Note well the stinging opening salvo fired at Israel here. Cows of Bashan. The Lord speaks. Bashan, by the way, was a region in the area that was just kind of known for its, its good cattle, its good crops, right? It was just, if I were to say to you, Silicon Valley, a whole host of thoughts will come into your mind. Rich, young tech billionaires, right? Or if I say New York City. Or if I say Napa Valley, what comes to mind? Wine, right? So if you were to say Bashan in this time, people would have thought, good cattle, good crops, right? That would have been their Napa Valley, okay? All right? So he says, you cows of Bashan, right? These rich women of Israel who are not only indifferent, listen, they're not only indifferent, this is the cruel thing, they're not only indifferent to the needs of the poor, but they actively oppress the poor, right? So they pass the poor, they don't just ignore them, they do more to add to their burden right? They do more. They crush the poor. Women whose primary concern and motivation are the accumulation of ever more goods and comfort. Bring that we may drink. Isn't this kind of a humorous line here? Can't you see the pinky sticking out in in this? You can see the kind of doilies on the table and the servants around with big leaves, you know, keeping them cool. You can kind of see this as as you read it. Bring that we may drink. Bring the Cabernet, darling, your finest, and do be quick about it. 
Okay, There's this sort of decadence about what's being said here. They're not concerned about the needs of the poor. They're just concerned about their next glass of wine, right? All the while, their husbands or lords, we think some might be concubines here, amass their fortunes on the backs of the poor. As these wives revel in the privilege of such patronage. So it isn't, it isn't that their oppression is direct, it's that it, it, but it's still, it's still guilty, right? It, it isn't that these women themselves are going out and mistreating the poor, but they're, they're more than happy. They're more than happy to be party and to be the benefactors of such oppression because it, it gets some comfort, right? So why, they're not going to speak up. They're enjoying this life. This life is good for them. They're happy to see their husbands, to see their lords uh, use, uh, use these, these horrible, ugly ways to, to accumulate wealth. They're fine with that because that's how we, get, that's how we afford this nice house. You know, don't, don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? Be thankful for these nice, lovely things. Don't ask, don't ask where it came from, okay? Just be happy, right? And they are. So the Lord swears, he swears by his own holiness. Now, you know you're in trouble when the Lord swears by his own holiness. He will do it, okay? He will do it. That they shall be taken away with hooks like fish, even down to the last one. Now, you'll note the word breaches. They're going to be led out. The, the kind of implication of the text is they're being led out like cattle, like captured prey. Like, you get a rope around the neck, and you're going to drag them out. They're coming with you, right? Okay? The, the word breaches. The walls of the kingdom will be breached. Walls which, so, which once so safely ensconced the rich and famous of Israelite high society, these defenses, they will fail. They will fail. Uh, perhaps you've seen this in a film before. Uh, there's always this scene where, where the military top brass are in this kind of room. There's screens everywhere and radar, you know, with like red dots all over the screen. And there's this general, and he's probably drinking coffee. And he always says something to the effect of, um, No, our enemy cannot penetrate our defenses. And he's at his leisure. And then there's always some other young communications officer over here, and he's got these giant he uh, earphones on, and he goes, Sir, and he's staring at these red blinking dots and making some sense of it. And he says, Sir, they've gotten in. And always the general is holding a cup of coffee, and the coffee falls in slow motion, and the cup shatters perfectly, and he falls into his chair. You know? How did they get in? How did they get in, right? We have impenetrable walls, impenetrable defenses, but they've gotten in. Usually it's a good film, right? Got a little suspense. Okay? Look, the wealthy liked the way things were going. They were going just fine. Robust economy, national peace and prosperity, and a vibrant and diverse religious life. But then there appears a crack in the wall. A crack in the wall. And a crack can change everything. Because that crack, that crack might spread. That crack might become a breach. And you know what breaches can do? They can let in men. They can let in soldiers. They can let in defenses. Breaches can very quickly, 
rob us of our illusions of security. That things will always be good and and nice. You see a breach, you see a crack in the wall, you get nervous. Yahweh is about to use a foreign power to shatter the dreams of Israel's wealthy elite. No more cocktail parties. No more evening parties with the cabernet and and the easy laughter. No more oppressing the poor and needy to bankroll their opulent lifestyles. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leaven, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For you love, you love to do so, declares. For you love to do, do so, people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, at first glance, you might ask, why is the Lord asking Israel to come here and sin? That's kind of jarring right? But such a text must be interpreted through the lens of divine sarcasm. The Lord is being sarcastic here toward Israel. Divine sarcasm. Bethel and Gilgal, historic places in Israel's history, they have become hubs of duplicitous and often syncretistic worship. Good places have become bad places. Right? In fact, if you look at the chapter 5, and I'll read it here, verses 4 through 5 of Amos, the prophecy says this, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter in the Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Okay? So what we're seeing here in, the, in this text, it's an interesting text, because what we're seeing is, is sort of a reversal of, say, Psalm 104. Psalm 104 says this. Enter his, you probably know the verse. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Right? So come into the, into the temple. Come into the tent of worship, the tent of sacrifice, and worship your God. And Amos is saying here, and God through Amos, yeah, come on in. Come on in, do the practices, run through the routines, and all the while, it's empty, it's shallow, sin away. Just sin away, right? Did you ever get in trouble with your parents, and they said, just keep on doing what you're doing right now? You know that's not an invitation to keep doing that, right? You should not keep doing that at that point. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, come, come, to, come to Bethel and sin, and then go to Gilgal and just sin some more. You know, just multiply what you did at Bethel. Multiply transgression. Demonstrate rebellion through an emptiness of worship. That's what they're doing here. That's what he's saying. He's just saying, show show me through this empty worship what, what you really are inside, what you have become. You don't care about Yahweh. You don't care about the needy and the poor. You don't care. It's, it's all about you. You're curving in on yourself. So just come and, sh- and show, show me that. Show me the emptiness of your, 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 your acts of worship. So Amos doesn't appear to be condemning their practice here. He's just condemning, he sees the underlying motivation, right? Which we see in verse 5. Proclaim freewill offerings. Okay, proclaim them. Make sure people know about them now, okay? Call, call for them, right? And then publish them. 
Make them known, right? Put out the word. Get on Facebook and tell everybody about your free will offering, right? Tweet it out. Get your camera phone and take a picture of your free will offering and then put that on Instagram, okay? Just make, make sure everybody knows about it because that's really why you're here, right? You're really here as, as, a, as a service to yourself, as a way to boost your own reputation. For you love to do so, right? Says, says Yahweh. You, you just love to do this, right? You love to draw more attention to yourself. Israel loves to parade its acts of religious devotion, not as a means of making God look glorious, but as a way of showcasing her own excellence. They sweep their acts of cruelty toward the poor under the rugs on top of which they strut like peacocks, which they have become. Behold us, think highly of us as we bring our sacrifices, as we bring our tithes, as we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as we flawlessly perform all of these religious activities. Aren't we swell? But God is not fooled. God is not fooled. It's the heart that he desires, and it's the heart that they deny him. He wants to see Israel's love for him leave the heart, pour out of the body, and into each ritual, each sacrifice, each tithe, each free will offering, a love that regards not the self, but forgets the self, but forgets the self, because it is so captivated by the majesty and the grandeur of the one to whom all of this is directed. He doesn't want their empty and perfunctory religious performance. As if that could please him. As if that could please an omniscient being who can see through it like water. As if that could somehow placate him. He wants them to exercise the kind of faith in and love for and obedience to the kind, all of that to him that it cannot help but affect the way that they live in the world and treat people in the world. Okay? He wants them to look into these practices and see him. But they only see themselves. And so he brings calamity. He tries to get their attention, right? He says, essentially, look at me. That they might return to him as, as he wants them to. That they might return to Yahweh. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain for you, from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So he brings famine. Their teeth are clean not because they use trident gum, but because there's there's no food to dirty their teeth. 
can't dirty your teeth when you're not eating anything. He brings a lack of bread. He brings hunger. That doesn't work. People don't repent. So he, withhold the, he withholds the rain in a society whose livelihood depends on it entirely. Okay? He dries up the harvest. He disrupts farms and communities by sending rain in one place and not in another. So he's creating all of this tension within these communities and their relationships to one another. Still nothing. Nothing. No repentance. So he strikes the land with a strong east wind that browns the crops before they are ready for harvest. He makes the crops to ruin from disease and causes clouds of locusts to overrun their fig and olive trees. I don't know if you've ever seen a locust, but they are interesting creatures. I was overseas. We had a ton of them come through when I was getting ready to leave. And uh, the funny thing is you would be standing near one and you wouldn't know it. And it would let out this loud chirp. And it would scare you right off your seat. They, and they're large, and they just get everywhere. And they devour everything, okay? He brings these, these locusts. You know, if locusts hit us, maybe it wouldn't affect us as much, or we think it wouldn't. It would have a, a major effect. But think about when your whole livelihood depends on crops. And think about this one creature that can come through like a cloud that you can see from a distance and in minutes devour all your year's work. Just imagine that. Imagine if locusts had come and devour your house today. That's probably how this would feel. Just eat your car, eat the sides off your house. There's nothing but a foundation. How would you feel at the end of that? You would say, we got to get rid of these locusts. You set up a giant fan to blow them in the other direction. So the the Lord brings the locusts, right? Do the people repent? Do the people realize their need for Yahweh? Do they return to him? No. So he brings the evils of defeat and war. Pestilence, the deaths of young men and the foul scent rising from the corpses of sons slain in battle. Right? As with Egypt in the time of the Exodus, because what we're seeing is a reversal here of, of, of those places, right? Because in the Exodus, the Lord is he's using these judgments on Egypt again, for, on behalf of the people of Israel, right? And, and now he's using those judgments on Israel, Right? And Egypt's a witness. So, so the roles have been reversed here. Okay? So, so he does that. It's a devastating and demoralizing loss. Okay? Even the horses do not escape. Even the horses don't get away. Still the people do not repent. He brings total destruction to some of the people suddenly and totally without warning as he did when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Just quick in Abraham's day, okay? While sparing others like brands plucked from a fire that would have just as easily consumed them. So imagine you're in a neighborhood and you got a lineup of houses and this house right here just catches fire and is incinerated. And you're the house next door. And you're thinking, that was almost my house, right? And this house is gone. And this, happens, this house just happens to be left, Right? Total destruction, suddenly, in an instant. Not everybody, but, but some people, and totally, right? Total destruction. They still don't turn back. The people will not turn back to Yahweh. Therefore, says the Lord in verse 10, Thus what I will do to you, 
O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. Because the people refuse to meet the Lord in his holiness, they will meet him in judgment. They refuse to come into the temple, to come into his presence, to come into the tent of sacrifice, loving him, meeting him in his holiness, in his awesome power, in his great love and faithfulness. They don't want to meet him there. They have refused to meet him there. So instead, they will meet him in judgment, as we all will. As we all will. We will either meet the Lord in his love and grace through Christ, or we will meet him as judge. That is a fact. So who is this Israel, or who is this to whom Israel must now stand the post? The text tells us who he is, verse 13. He's, he's going to tell you who, 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 this, who this God is. Ready? For behold, for look, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. What is his thought? Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. Who is this? The Lord, the God of hosts. That's his name. He's, he can do all of this. Do you, do you know about this God? Makes mountains, creates the wind. This God is, able, is more than able to make good on his promise to bring justice to Israel, to help the poor. Do you see those mountains over there? Towering and majestic in the distance, reaching up to pierce cloud and sky? He made those. Or how about the wind? Invisible, unpredictable, yet power, powerful enough to bring to ruin any work of man. Yeah, he created that. When he descends, even the sunlight is snuffed out by the cloud of his glory as he moves across the heights of the earth as if, as if they were no more than stepping stones, right? It's just, they were just a walkway for him, these mountains. Who is this? The Lord God, right? And listen, he declares, he declares to man his thought. He reveals himself to man. He comes down, he condescends, and he, and he says, here is who I am. He reveals himself to man. He doesn't hide himself. Right? Who? The Lord. The God of hosts. That's his name. That's his name. So let's offer up a few reflections on what, on what we have read. One, the Bible teaches us a lot about who God is right? His character, his power, the things he loves and the things he hates. And one thing, one thing, that there are many things, but at least one thing that the Bible is really clear on is God's love for the poor and weak. And he promises to do much on their behalf, such as he promises not to forget them, okay? Psalm 9, 17 through 18, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forgot God, but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. He promises to pay back those who give to them. Listen to this, Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Okay? Or how about Luke 14, 14, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, listen to this, okay? This is a promise. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God will make good. He, he'll, he, he says, put, put it on my tab. I'll make sure that it's paid back, 
okay, on their behalf. Listen to this. He promises to be their refuge, okay? Psalm 9-9, you have been a refuge, or excuse me, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He's going to be their stronghold, okay? Or how about, Proverbs, or, uh, how about this promise? He promises to avenge them. He promises to avenge the poor and the weak. Listen to this, Proverbs 20, 22, 22 through 23. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court. Listen to this, okay? For the Lord will take up their case and he will exact life for life. And there is much more than that, much more. Showing kindness to those in need is a trademark of God's people in the Old and New Testament. And I would encourage you to go through the Bible and see what you see on this topic. There is an overwhelming amount of Scripture that says God is for the poor, he's for the weak. And in God's eyes, we're all poor and weak. We are all bereft. We are all entirely and equally dependent. But God, God puts a serious burden on people who have for people who have not. So don't dismiss the poor. I was convicted a number of years ago when I taught a a Wednesday night series on the book of James. And I came to a passage in James that dealt with this, as many of them do. And I was convicted by just the sheer scriptural weight that is placed on this. It It is breathtaking. And I was convicted about how easily in my heart it was to dismiss the poor. Of course, not the poor in Uganda, right? Not the poor in China. Because I have found that it's often very easy to be sympathetic toward them. What we, have, what we often have a hard time with is the poor in our midst. Amen? We do. We do. I have. The poor in our midst. Because it's easy. Listen, you can write up a hundred reasons and make a hundred assumptions of why said person is where they are and how they got there and, and so on. And certainly God does cause to be responsible uh, with our time and our money. And when we are not, there will often be consequences, right? The book of Proverbs, for example, speaks to such a reality. All right? That is, that is true. But, listen, we must take care. We must take care. Because in making too many assumptions and in manifesting a dismissive attitude toward those with less than ourselves, we may find ourselves at odds with the Word of God, which time and time and time again exhorts believers to take up the cause of the poor and the weak and the down and out. Take care. Listen, church, take care because such dismissals can reveal in our hearts a pride of life that whispers to us this, this right here, that everything we we have, that everything we have has come not from the hands of a generous God, but from ourselves. And think about this. And I said this in my James study years ago, and I'll say it again today. Consider what you might be, where you might be, if the Lord had allowed every sinful decision you made, if if he had allowed you to have the full ramification of that sinful decision or behavior, where would you be? I put it to you. Think about it. Remember Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. When we help those who are poor, when we help those who are weak, when we help those who have need, church, we honor God. We honor God. We do, we do for them. We model Christ to them in the way that, that Christ modeled himself, gave himself to us. We become little 
Christ when we reach out to those who need help, who are poor, when we offer them the gospel, and we, when we offer them bread, when we are generous with our time, with our money, when we don't have a bias against those who are poor and say, well, you're only that way because you made such and such a decision. And I know it. We don't have that attitude. Instead, we say, God, how can I help? What can I do? Let me help some people here. How can, I, how, can I, how can I step in? I want that to be our heart. I want that to be my heart. I want the, that to be the heart of the church. Okay? Two, believe, belief and practice are immutably linked together. You cannot separate the two. Let me ask you this, okay? If you were in Walmart and I ran in all of a sudden and breathlessly announced that a band of gunmen were getting ready to enter the store... And then a minute later, you saw me drowsily and quietly sifting through flannel shirts on the clearance rack. What would you believe about my original announcement? You wouldn't believe it, right? Why? Because this guy's clearly not running around like there's gunmen about to come into the store. So what would you conclude? That there are no gunmen, right? You would automatically link behavior with with back to what was said, what was professed, right? Or you would say that guy's bonkers. That's where the analogy breaks down. A person's actions are indicative of how they perceive the world. They tell us about what the person believes to be valuable or admirable or, 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 or what they find to be true and worthy of pursuit, okay? So listen, you can climb the ladder to a person's beliefs from the bottom rung of how that person behaves, right? So if you knew a man or woman who, who worked endless hours and, and stepped on everybody, did whatever it took to climb the corporate ladder, what would you conclude about that person, even if you never talked to him? What, what would you conclude about what, how that person viewed the world? You're probably doing it right now in your head. Maybe you know such a person, right? You would say... This person believes that the end justifies the means, that you got to get money while you can, as much as you can, because you, you may not have any later, right? That it's okay to use people, right, as a means of, 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 of personal ambition. I mean, you, could, you can go on and on here, right? You would see this person's actions, and then you would go right back and say, okay, this is what this person believes, right? It doesn't mean that we'll never, a person can never be inconsistent, even believers. We know we will be. We know that if we say we are without sin, we're lying, right? First John, we're lying. But we also know that Christians do not make an indefinite practice of willful sinning, and that if we do, that that practice says something, right? It says something. It speaks a truth. For Israel, their mouths were saying one thing. Their rituals were saying one thing. But their actions, they were saying something quite different. And for God, the two could not be reconciled, okay? They could not be reconciled. Listen, God is loving and forgiving, but he will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. This is what one preacher says. Listen to this. God will gladly take the dirtiest sinner into his arms on Sunday morning who comes with a broken and contrite heart intent on forsaking all known sin and trusting in Jesus for cleansing. Amen? He'll do that. But God will not be mocked by those who make like they love him and willfully break his law during the week. He will not be mocked. A person will reap what they sow. 
God will not be mocked. He loves the contrite. He loves to forgive sinners. It's his pleasure to do that. He loves to do that. But he won't be mocked. Three, remember this, and this is our final point here. God sends calamities, the calamities of verses 6 to 11, because he loves Israel and wants Israel to return to him. Because he loves Israel, because he loves Israel, he brings pain. He does the hard thing. He makes the hard times come. He does not withdraw himself from Israel. Withdrawing himself, listen, would be the greatest disaster. The worst thing that could happen would be for Yahweh to remove himself from Israel. That's the worst thing. But he doesn't do that. The people of God have gone off track. And because he loves them, God will do what is required to restore them to a right relationship with him. Because if he withdraws himself, that would mean that Israel could no longer have a special relationship with the most lovely, the most beautiful, with the most gracious being in all the universe. Triune God. But he doesn't do that, right? He's going to get them back on track. So he brings famine and drought and diseased crops and pestilence and all the ravages of war. He brings all of these evils, all of these evils to bear upon the people of Israel, listen, that they might produce a greater good. He does this still. God gets at men and women through their skin, doesn't he? He uses painful circumstances to awaken them and lead them to repentance and to himself. Maybe you've heard this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Pretty famous quote here. He says, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but listen to this, shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain can reorient us even as it disorients us. That is true. What do I mean by that? What I mean is it is often during times of pain when we feel everything is upside down that we are often made aware of the ways in which our lives have taken bad turns. That's not all pain does. Pain also reminds us that God's, uh, our, uh, God, in our weaknesses, God, is, God can make uh, perfect his own strength, right? Uh, it, it, pain is a witness to the world around us. Uh, that, that Jesus is our remedy and our peace. Pain helps us to grow and mature as believers. We've all experienced this, or we will. But God can use pain, and he does this for Israel, to again, he, God says, Israel, look at me. Look at me. Quit looking around and look at me, Israel. And he uses pain to do that. Pain can reveal to us many things. The things we take for granted. Sinful thoughts or habits that, we haven't, that we've been indulging and just kind of letting go. Or a lack of trust and faith in God. Listen, pain can reveal to us all of these things. And God can use it to that end. And it's not an easy thing to say. I don't say it, I don't say it easily, okay? Because I don't want to suffer. And I don't want you to suffer, right? I don't want that. And perhaps if I had a choice of whether or not to allow a person to endure dark times, I wouldn't. Perhaps if it were me in charge, and I'm dealing with Israel, I would say Israel's had quite enough, don't you think, after the pestilence? And maybe I would say, let's, let's back off a little here, okay? Let's uh, give, them some, give them some breathing room, right? But God's love is better. 
it is better for you and for me. It actively seeks out the repentance of his people when they give way to sin. God's sight is sharper. He can see for miles. He knows what is needed. And the worst thing that can happen for me or you is not that we might face pain in this life, but that we might never repent. Okay? And the good news is this. If you are in Christ, united to him by faith, he will always have you back. He will always get you back. If you're in here today and you're a Christian, God will always get you back. He will have you in the end. You are his, and there is no getting away. And he might use pain to do it, and it isn't because he hates you. It's the opposite. It's because he loves you. He will have you. You are his, okay? That sounds tough, and I know it will be tough, and if it's happened to you, it probably was tough, right? The waters may be daunting, But because he has set his love on you and on me, he will have us when it's all said and done, right? Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the prophet Amos and what you have spoken through him. Father, remind us, remind us, Father, that you call all men, all women, every face on the earth, every heart, to repent, to trust in you for salvation. Father, enable us to be good and kind to the poor, to the needy, to the weak around us, not just in far-off places, but the ones in our midst who need help. Make us aware of the need and give us hearts that are willing, just just gospel-willing, having received the glorious grace of the gospel, willing to to let that grace flow out of us and into, into how we deal with those who are weak and needy in our midst, God. Make us that way. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for not remaining silent. Thank you that, as the text says, you you are a God who reveals to man his thought. Thank you for that thought. We love you. In Christ's name.